You're only as good as the people on your right and left of you. Hello there and welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. As always, I'm joined by my partner in crime, Mr. Tom Basson. But this week, we have an extra guest from our editorial team. Steve McCaskill, our technology editor, joins us from the streets of Monaco as he attends this week's Sportel conference. Steve, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, your debut, I think, alongside me. Yeah, first time with you. I'm, on the, I'm from the, the wrong side of the tracks in Monaco. It's uh, a dangerous place. How's it been so far? It has been lovely, as you might imagine. The weather has been great. Lots of nice places to eat and to catch up with people from the industry. So, yeah, it's been a wonderful week. Well, before Tom and I get a case of the Green Eye Monster, let's talk business. How have the sessions been? Yeah, the sessions have been, as you imagine, addressing a lot of the topics that we're facing in the industry. From my perspective, things like streaming and, and direct consumer, but also a lot of talk about things like private capital in sports and and how that's going to change things. A lot of things on the streaming side, how people are building these platforms, things like how artificial intelligence is changing, consumer habits. And then later on this afternoon, we're going to be listening from Javier Tebas from, from La Liga to hear his latest musings. Um, so it's been a really good uh, con- Congress so far, really nice uh, sessions, really informative, and some really high-profile speakers. Steve, do you get the sense with the sort of the conversation around D two C and streaming that it's evolving slightly beyond just is this a good thing? Is this something I need to be doing? To how should I approach this? And like, what's the best way for me to perhaps go to direct consumer or embrace a kind of digital approach to broadcast? There's definitely a, a maturation of that conversation and, and those strategies. And you have to look at the exhibition space. It's it's a lot of you're getting quite far down the supply chain now. And there's lots of you know people do things a particular thing very well. And there's a lot of talk of integration. How you build out those platforms, as you say, the question is no longer do we go direct to consumer, it's how we go direct to consumer, and how that fits in as an overall media strategy. How you reuse that content to reach social platforms, other digital channels. There's definitely been a shift in those conversations. I think that's been quite clear from, again, the talks, the people I've been chatting to behind the scenes, and there's lots of people trying, hoping to find new technologies, strike deals this week. You talk about those questions raised. Are you seeing a consensus in how to approach them and answer them? I don't think there's a consensus. I think there's a lot of vendors trying to be the answer, feeding with each other. There's a simultaneous recognition that you need to use best of breed, but also a lot of rights holders might not have that technical knowledge. So there's a lot of talk of integration, ease of use. That's been a big topic based on, you know, the, the conversations I've had with people who, again, are looking looking for things. So no real consensus. Lots of people are going different ways. Uh, only this week, the NHL has is, uh, expanded its partnership with Sport Radar to include OTT before it was a, a data and, and betting partnership. So there is talk of how you know how can anyone be that one-stop shop can they do that all in one proposition that takes the difficult parts of building an ott platform so they can focus on content and strategy on that nhl and sport radar deal steve i know you spoke to uh, some sport radar folk down on the ground there in monaco uh, what was the what's the kind of new elements there for for the nhl and and for sport radar too i think they used to just they used, their partnership used to be just based around data and betting right yeah, so they've been building out their OTT capabilities. Obviously, using that data as a, as a, as a pillar of it, that, that's got, got their relationships. They have relationships with a, a lot of high-profile competitions, especially in North America, where 
betting is, is, is exploding. So they are trying to build those relationships, expand their offering. And one of the things they said was, look, we're already handling the data, we're already handling with it, their video, so we can, we can do more with this. And they've been building out their, their internal capabilities, also taking technologies elsewhere and creating this, I guess, unified platform that they can go to their data clients and say, look, you know, you, you're doing this, we can do this for you, we can expand what you're doing and we can help you, you know, have success when it comes to direct to consumer. Because it's it's a difficult thing to do. It's always people think you just stick it stick it on the internet. That there's a lot of tech that goes behind it. There's marketing, which, you know, but I think that's what the NHL wants to focus on. I guess as well, it also gives a little bit more separation from the NHL and Disney, who it used to have an investment in, right? Like that they used to sort of lean on Disney for, for that kind of element of their streaming stuff. I guess in the US they've got the relationship with, I think it's NHL Plus, the NHL streaming platform is on ESPN Plus rather. But now this means overseas that it's going to be managed by Sport Radar? So NHL have that. I mean, NHL basically took their direct consumer product in the US and shifted it onto ESPN Plus. It was almost like a wholesale relationship. And that's happened before. So obviously WWE moved the WWE Network to Peacock. Interestingly, it also had quite a big technological shift a couple of years ago. It migrated its platform. Again, as these strategies mature, people are getting, they're learning more. They know what they, what they want to do. So the answer to your question, yes, this is an international focus deal, but we've seen NHL do a slightly different move in, in North America. And Steve, obviously you're well-versed in these topics and have been for a number of years, but has there been anything that's come out of the conference so far that surprised you or anything that's caught your eye there? I don't know if there's a single moment that that, that has surprised me. Um, I think there was, again, I, even being you know the technology editor, there's not really even a tech story that's, that's grabbed my attention just because it is a case of evolution or revolution. Um, I think, again, I know I talked about it earlier on, the, the, the private equity thing that has been on a lot of people's lips, people asking questions about what sports do. It's, you know, it's a challenging macroeconomic environment as well. But one of the, the big lines I thought was that um, they think private equity in sport is recession proof, which I thought was very interesting. Can you explain what that means a little bit more, just like to the, uh, the layman, as it were? Sure. So I think the, the suggestion was that it's, it's still market because there's room for, there's room for growth, even though it is, you've got these challenging uh, economic conditions, which is impacting the, the cost of living. Private equity, as opposed to raising money, I suppose on the on on you know through through, through debt, because they are partnerships, because there is, uh, I guess, a degree of the, the risk is, is is lower because you're going in it together because these equity firms think they can add value. So it's a longer term play, I suppose. That's what they mean they mean by it. There's there's the you know the rights holders, the, the federations, they're not increasing their debt that could come back to haunt them. They are going into partnerships, and the it, it relies on the success. So the, sorry, the equity firms rely on it being a success, so you know, so they can they can exit further down the line. So I think that's what is equity is willing to take those long term bets. Things like media rights because they have longer term deals, they're, they're long term investments by their nature. So. Uh, I guess a lot of people are hoping that within five years, it'll be a much more favorable climate. So yeah, I, I think that's the gist of it. Talking of broadcast deals that offer future protection for revenues, I know you've also spoken with Eurovision um, in your time at Sportel, and they have just completed the acquisition of the 2023 Women's World Cup rights um, from FIFA. What was your take on that deal, Steve? Well, I mean, it's it's very much in line with what Eurovision does. It gets it 
does these pan-European deals for public service broadcasters, distributes them. Uh, it's obviously beneficial, to, I guess, just to smaller to smaller media markets. Although you know the, B- the BBC is a member of the EBU, it takes a lot of rights from there. Things like the World Athletics Championship, and it's it's done this for football tournaments b- before. What was interesting about this rights deal is it? I think it's twenty eight territories. It's not entire of, of Europe, and that's because FIFA is holding out for for more revenue in, in well, the, not necessarily just the large media markets, but media markets that have. I guess a greater interest in in women's football, so countries that have, that have qualified. So this include, you know, the, the deal doesn't cover the UK, it doesn't cover Germany, Italy, Spain, or France, but equally doesn't include Norway, which is obviously a major major footballing nation in the women's game. So that that was the striking thing thing about the deal. More could be added, but obviously FIFA just believes that given you know women's football was on on a a bit of a moment at, at the minute, particularly in the in, in the UK after England's success and, and the other and other nations qualifying for tournaments, it believes it can extract more value from those rights than it could have done in the past. Yeah, it's, it comes a, a sort of quite interesting time, doesn't it? You had that interview given by Romy Guy, FIFA's chief business officer, to Bloomberg. I think it was last week where she revealed that FIFA had basically turned down a, a lot of offers. I think it was Italy, Germany, France, and the UK for the rights to the to the women's game because they were deemed too low. I think it speaks to the strength of, uh, of women's football at the moment that FIFA feels like it's able to do that, but also feels like it should do that because like, for me, it's, it's not just a kind of a business decision from FIFA. I mean, obviously, FIFA's, uh, FIFA likes to up its revenues, but FIFA's goal ultimately shouldn't be to try and make as, as much profit as it can. It should be to try and grow football and part of that is making sure that the women's game has proper investment and part of that is securing greater investment in the broadcast rights right yeah absolutely and, and you look at the the commercial success that women's football is, is having right now the audiences you know are, are unprecedented i'm going to come i'm going to defend the, the broadcasters ever so slightly and the fact that it is in australia and, and new zealand and therefore the time zones won't won't be as favorable and although i'm sure there'll be good audiences for for england's games for example that you know, it was a home tournament this summer, and there was a, a lot of excitement. So I will, I will defend in, in that case. But I think you're right. It, traditionally, women's sport has been a long-term play. Rights holders encourage broadcasters to go in with them to build it into something bigger that everyone benefits from further down the line. So it could just be that FIFA is believes that moment is has come forward. This is this is the time when the Women's World Cup is a really attractive commercial proposition. It's going to get you ratings the other thing to note is that one of the reasons that women's world cup and the women's euro has been so successful is because in a lot of countries they are on free-to-air tv and by its very nature public service broadcasters may not have as much to spend as a pay tv provider might but i guess i guess that's always been the case with the men's world cup i mean yes with the exception of a few markets but generally speaking the big nations will their games will all be on free-to-air tv and that's been a big part of why the, the men's world cup has become like the most viewed sports um, property on the planet. So I, I kind of take your point. I, I accept as well that Australia and New Zealand is very, very far away from the, those those European territories I mentioned previously. But uh, to me, it feels like it feels right for FIFA to, to be saying that kind of thing publicly. And the public part of that, I think, is quite important because that might have been a conversation that was previously had behind closed doors. But it's good to sort of flag that, no, actually, we, we want to say in public that we think this is worth more than you guys are willing to put up initially. As a fan, I want I want to see more investment in the women's game. I think we're all, you know, I think we're all in public agreement with that. So if that's what it goes goes towards, then I'm, I'm, I 
<laughs> of course I support that. And I think that is the, that is the right thing to do. I think it's more, it still remains a symbiotic relationship. And, you know, if more revenue is great, games on, on, on free-to-air TV, great. And I'm sure they'll, I'm sure something will be sorted out, but there's still a bit of time to go. It'd be interesting to see what that final form that deal takes. Now that that gauntlet has been thrown down publicly, do you see those broadcasts coming back to the table with improved offers or do you think FIFA will have to climb down? They'll negotiate a deal that, that suits everyone. I cannot imagine a situation where we do not have the Women's World Cup on, on TV in, the, in, the, in these markets. As Tom said, they have publicly called it out because it also puts, you know, puts for example, again, the BBC, public service broadcaster, it, it license, license fee funded, there might be a bit of pressure on that. And of course, the wider conversations we're having about women's sport, it's going, I don't think many broadcasters are going to be seen as not having that commitment to women's sport, not believing in its true value. So I think it's a clever play by FIFA. Uh, but yes, I, I, I cannot imagine that we, we don't have those deals in place. Well, Steve, thank you very much for your time. We'll leave you to the delights of Monaco and, uh, and make sure you stay on the right side of the tracks for the last couple of days that you're out there. I, I just want to clarify, there is no wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> but thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Steve. Well, as you said, certainly a conversation around women's sports has been driven and accelerated um, significantly over the past 12 months. And this this week represents and marks a pretty significant moment in sports pros journey to, to help grow the women's game and, and our involvement there um, as we launch the new era class of 2022. So let's move on to part two where we chat to some of the people who have made that happen. Andy and Vicky, welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. It's great to have you both uh, on the show. This week, of course, marks a, a particularly important moment um, for your relationships with Sports Pro, um, marking the release of the 2022 cohort for the New Era program. Um, how have you found the process so far of being involved in the program and what have been some of your main takeaways? Yeah, go for it, Vicky. Yeah, yeah. From my perspective, I think it's been really straightforward. It's been really easy um, in terms of just being engaged. <clears throat> we've had it made a very straightforward sort of way of getting involved. But what I would say in terms of takeaways is the quality and the caliber of the um, applicants for being part of this program has been incredible. I've been blown away by, um, you know, just just the experience levels, the quality, the talent, and it, it's just a very exciting period for us all, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a really exciting time, and this is a great start to the program. Um, agree that the quality of the applicants I think has been exceptional and the diversity and the experience and just the level of you know caliber that everyone's bringing and what everyone's bringing to the table and same with the steering group too I've just been really impressed by everyone and it's been nice meeting everyone. As part of the steering group you've both kindly offered to give up your time throughout the next 12 months to provide mentorship and, and career advice and more to the cohort selected. Why have you chosen to do that? Why do you think being part of a program like this is important? Yeah, I think it's uh, important because, you know, just as women coming up in the industry and having looked at, you know, my experience personally, um, finding mentors, finding pathways, um, finding, you know, how to navigate yourself um, through a career, especially a career in sports. Um, I think it's important for me to give back and to mentor a lot of these uh, women coming up. Um, and I think it's just a great experience and program. 
And for myself, I think, you know, looking at my experience today, you always want to have the opportunity to speak with people who you feel have been through um, a lot and have gained a lot of experience. And it's not always your peer group that can give you that expertise. It tends to be people who effectively have been around the boy, have have actually had, you know, um, a vast amount of experience, uh, of experience within this type of environment and in particular within sport. Uh, and I do recall actually looking up to, um, you know, certain women as I've been coming through who've held really you know, high profile positions, but it's difficult to access them sometimes. So actually, by putting ourselves forward, we take away those barriers, and we make ourselves far more accessible to individuals who are seeking out uh, the opportunity to get some mentorship from individuals who've been experienced in the sector, and also, you know, somebody aside from their peer group. Leading on from what you guys were both saying about your own experiences when you first like entered the industry, do you feel, feel like something like this would have been like of value to you when you were getting started? A hundred percent. I think it's quite intimidating when there's not that many senior women leaders in sport. I mean, there's obviously the landscape's changing significantly, but it's quite intimidating trying to make that approach yourself and you don't really know where to start. But if somebody effectively creates the introduction and creates a program that's more structured, I think that's a fantastic So I would have absolutely relish that opportunity there's no doubt about it yeah same here i 100 percent would have embraced this i think it's hard starting off um, when you don't really know you know you don't have anyone to look up to you don't really know what you're doing you're kind of you know trying to figure it out in the business landscape and for me personally you know i was starting off in a new country even um so finding people and, and finding you know, those right places, I think is difficult. So having like a structured program would definitely have helped just to connect the dots. You both talked a little bit about the inaccessibility when you're starting out of approaching people in more senior positions. And certainly we saw, I think it was 270 or more applications for this program, which surpassed really even our most ambitious hopes. And I think it does clearly show that there's a huge reservoir of talent out there that is is really willing to to have that platform and to share their views um, in the industry. But for businesses that don't have the same platform that SportsPro do to facilitate that, what can they do to support women in the industry that are looking to gain that greater exposure or to network outside of their core group further? Yeah, I think, um, you know, just networking and providing opportunities for people to gather outside of, you know, the day to day is important. I know when I was starting out um, and, you know, in a new city, unfamiliar with everything, it was just more about networking and building connections and trying to find other groups and committees and what were people doing um, and then just kind of stumbling your way around through all of that, really. So I think anything that's made available I would certainly have grasped onto that uh, when I was younger. Yeah, and I think um, it's really important that, you know, if you're an employer of of women that you are trying to effectively encourage to take opportunities, it's really understanding the requirements around flexible working, but how do you actually encourage women to come into the space and thrive? I look at, for example, female coaches of which there are not hardly any in snow sports, for example, are very limited. 
And a lot of the barriers to that are the fact that there's a lot of travel involved. There's a great deal of time away from home. And at what as they are then at the stage where they may or may not want families, it becomes quite prohibitive. So I think it's understanding what are the barriers that prevent women from taking on some of these roles and responsibilities and and actually how can those barriers be tackled. So I think as an employer in particular or other organizations, it's it's looking at the barriers um, that that prevent that inclusion or indeed the encouragement of women to to not only step into the breach and, and take those roles on but also to be able to follow a a really fruitful career pathway as well and vicky when it comes to those barriers do you think there exists an education gap in terms of what those barriers actually are are there further hidden biases and and other factors at play that prevent women from effectively pursuing these opportunities as I said earlier, I think the landscape is definitely changing. I think the more women you see in leadership positions whereby they can role model, you know, the next generation, the better, because there is nothing quite like being able to, you know, if you can't see, you can't be at the old saying goes, but I think it's really true because when you see women, you know, doing extremely well and you can see that actually there is a less of a gender gap going on, it's easier to aspire to, to head in that direction because you'll have peer groups and you'll have people you can relate to and speak to to help you understand what are or what are the challenges they face just as we're doing with this program. So whether there are biases still in existence, I mean, I definitely, as I said before, I do think the landscape's changing. I think there's nothing quite like seeing more females taking on some of these bigger leadership roles that have through history been very male dominated. Do you think there also exists a gap at the, for want of a better phrase, the grassroots layer of recruitment when it comes to women finding it an accessible industry when starting out? So those entry level roles, looking at how you diversify the candidate pool. I know a slightly different comparison, but the NFL's Rooney rule, for instance, ensuring that a person of color is interviewed as part of the coach recruitment process. Could you see a similar initiative working within the sports industry lower down the rung? So it's not just at the executive leadership that diversity is an important factor when it comes to recruitment, actually making sure that the the pool from which that's coming from is as representative as it can be. Yeah, I think so. I I definitely think diversity, especially at the lower rungs, is a necessity and a must. At Tennis Channel, we've looked at this and we've tried different approaches. I know you just mentioned the NFL, but, you know, we've looked at, you know, how can we diversify the pool of candidates that we're getting um, so that we just have, you know, more talent to choose from and it's difficult because you know there's some you know we've looked at other non-traditional ways of attracting new talent we've looked at you know trying to eliminate some subjective bias and looking at resumes or looking at you know the candidates coming in um, what are different tactics that we can use Um, so I definitely think that you know there is some change happening here or more thought being put into how can we you know get more people into the company because you know the more women we have or the more diverse candidates we have at the company then you know the more pathways there are for people to succeed um, which is definitely needed and andy how successful have those initiatives been have you seen a greater um more 
diverse pool, and not just from a background point of view, but also the cognitive diversity that's so important in businesses also. Have you seen a, a much wider array of candidates applying for roles? Um, just myself speaking, just for my team and my department, you know, I've been fairly proactive in, in making sure that there is uh, more inclusion um, happening. So I think so, although there's still a long way to go, um, you know, other departments, other companies, certainly, but I try to be fairly proactive in this area and try to you know, take a lot of time in hiring and finding the right candidates. Vicky, from a, a hiring point of view, is that something you've also looked at in the GB snow sports world and, and maybe in previous roles? And Vicky, you've talked about maybe having to be proactive in that process. Is that something that, is that an experience that you've shared? I totally agree with Andy in the sense that the wider the funnel at the bottom in terms of diversification, the easier it is that you you know you can then ensure that you are maintaining um, that throughout the organisation as it grows. I mean, you have to have that diversity at every level of the organisation, from the board right through to the grassroots, in order to really make a difference and in order to genuinely demonstrate you know that sense of diversity because diversity as we all know brings such great value if you end up picking the right team with with you know the right skill set to complement each other and we we consistently proactively are seeking uh, you know how do we ensure not only the diversity in terms of the employment um, of the people that we bring into the organization, but also of the athletes that if we want to get into snow sports or with my other role into surfing, you know, we want to see this massive grassroots sort of pool of talent because through that you are hopefully going to end up at least putting, you know, um, a number of really talented athletes onto podiums from a diverse sector, uh, one would hope. Can we just sort of um, like flip this around a little bit and say sort of, uh, and look at it from kind of from a pitching perspective to just outline because I think it's really important sometimes to outline why these things are important. We've talked about like the the, the process of getting people in and, and and all of that kind of area, but what then it, are the positive results when that happens that you guys were seeing within the organisations that you work in? So you've managed to require that diversity of thought. What are some of those positive outcomes that you've got when that has been achieved? I think just, you know, diversity of thought, uh, creative ideas, there's more voices at the table. Um, you know, I run a lot of content and operations and production and um, having the different ideas, background experiences, all of that creates a much richer storytelling environment, different points of perspective, um, even like telling different stories of different athletes. You know, tennis is a very global sport and, you know, looking at different athletes from all these other countries and, you know, having producers who are um, personally interested in telling these stories, I think has, you know, definitely helped our group yeah, from, my, from my perspective I think it's really interesting isn't it because you you may think that you understand how other people think and feel you may think that you can actually predict what it is that they are going to do next but the reality is it's the different backgrounds and it's the different upbringings different experiences that actually make it a, and combine them makes it a much richer environment in which to, to operate so I always find it fascinating when you are working with somebody who, who believes they know exactly what it's like for somebody else but the other person can very often bring a completely different aspect and different thought process to where you're heading and the more people 
that you can put around a table that have the ability to have the wider thought and not come to to enter to the table with a, with a narrow mind the better really just speaking personally from my experience of like working in a newsroom we kind of often get into a, a an idea where we, we we know what readers want we, we we think we know what our audience is but all it takes is for someone to come along and, and to challenge that view and actually you end up thinking oh god we've been doing this wrong for so long like i think that's one of the reasons why programs like this are important but also that people are that that kind of unconscious bias is addressed too a really good example of that is is having an athlete around the table because I, I don't know how many people in leadership positions think that they know exactly how an athlete thinks and feels when they haven't been one it's always super helpful and particularly um from from different backgrounds and different genders having athletes that i had have just gone through this um, with a conversation actually with Dave Riding, he's a, he's one of our um, sort of super, well, he's our best alpine skier, met the, the best British men alpine skier, male alpine skier. But having him around the table with a coach was so interesting. Having had everybody actually believe they they knew what he wanted, but it wasn't quite like having him turning around saying, "Well, thank you very much for thinking that. It's not what I wanted at all." It was fascinating that that experience just happened earlier on, which I thought was, you know, is, is a really good example as as to why it's important to get those voices heard. For sure. Andy, I um, wanted to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, um, your first experiences um, moving to a new country, you said, and, and, and entering a new industry. A key part of the New Era program and its relationship with the steering group is that mentorship and and having those touch points throughout the year for, for advice and and more. How much have you relied on mentors um, through your career, um, both in the formative stages and even now? No, um, mentorship has been a huge part of my career, um, and I'm really lucky to have found um, a few people to help me through. Because, um, like I said, I originally from Toronto from Canada and um, I moved down to um, LA right after I graduated and I didn't know anybody and I was trying to navigate myself in a world of you know Hollywood and production and all of these things and you know it wasn't necessarily always kind and it was kind of a scary place or a lonely place at times um, and you're you know new and young um, and really naive as well and so um, thankfully I did find a few mentors that really helped me and I really have to credit a lot of my early movement and jobs and success because I did find some people to help me Um, but otherwise you know I think I was up against a lot of you know challenges um, especially in the beginning in those first few years Um, so definitely mentorship was really important to me um, in the early stages and then now um, just mentoring you know, the group of, you know, people that I have on my team, mentoring the young women who have, you know, I've crossed paths with, um, that is very important to me, just knowing how it helped me. To follow up on that, I know in one of our editorial team, Sam Carper's run a feature with other members of the steering group and Sarah Beattie mentioned that it's only really once she's moved into these more senior and executive roles that she can reflect back on the role that these mentors have played and and also some of the challenges that have come with getting there as as you sit now on the other side of the fence um mentoring people coming through and you're reflecting back on your own experiences entering the industry do you look back and think that wasn't okay or that was a structure in place that's that's unacceptable and and how 
how do you think the the industry's changed since then? Yeah, I I, I look back and think actually there were probably times when it's been more challenging than it needed to be. And had I had the right mentorship or the right experience whereby I could have navigated it better, that would have seriously helped. I would say now when I look at how programs like this can be a benefit and actually some of the mentorship I'm doing with some young women from Bath University, it I can really understand how daunting it can be facing into those challenges as well. And a a good example being that, um, you know, I was speaking to an individual who was saying, you know, she really, really wants to take up a leadership position in football, for example, but she's struggling to find senior females in those key leadership positions that she can effectively then um, follow their pathway or understand how they've got there. And it was only when she was talking to me, I started looking at it myself. I mean, it's, there's a really fair point. So there's obviously still work to be done, but I definitely, uh, on reflection, think it would have been helpful to have had, you know, uh, some role models that have, could have put the hand down and, and, and sort of navigated, helped you navigate that way through, or at least made introductions and to, to a, a network that could have been supportive. Andy, I guess the same question goes to you. Has this process prompted a period of reflection in terms of your own journey to to where you are now? Yeah, definitely. Um, I I do think back a lot and uh, think about, and I kind of, what Vicky was just saying, kind of do make it, you know, harder on yourself than it needs to be sometimes. And I definitely struggled. And, you know, looking back now, you know, there's always like, oh, I could have done this, I could have done that, or I should have looked for this. And also just the way that you take every experience with you and you take those skills for good or bad. Um, in hindsight, I think you can reflect on those opportunities and why you took that job or what you learned from it and the people that you met and also the bosses that you've had, right? You can take a lot of the different skills and things that they taught you and you kind of collect all these things as you go. So I think looking back and looking at you know things that I did helps I remember more when I talk to, you know, some of the other young people, but what they're going to, I can put myself better into their shoes. Yeah, there's a lot of reflecting, I think, that goes as you as you keep going on. And Vicky, to, to pick up on that, the period of reflection that comes, obviously, that's from the position of having built a platform and a reputation in the industry that's obviously taken many years to acquire. Do you feel that responsibility to share those reflections and to share your insights with people coming up through the industry, particularly young women, and also almost an unfair responsibility given that that level of expectation doesn't exist in the same way for men, given that it's an easier pathway? I absolutely do feel that expectation, which is why Andy and I are probably here. We feel you have a need to give back. I mean, and also I think it's when you get enjoyment because you know, we have some battle scars, I'm pretty sure, from being on the way up. And actually, it's the the enjoyment you get is by turning them, as Andy rightly pointed out, into an opportunity and into a positive, because it's any experience, you know, good or bad, is, is extremely helpful when it comes to building resilience. But it's also, there's nothing quite like when you can actually relate your experiences to somebody when they're going through it, so that they fit, they normalize, you normalize it. And then you hopefully give them an opportunity to find a better path or at least an easier path. So in terms of is there more onus on us to do that than um, than on men? I'm not sure because actually I think 
men can also make great mentors for women as well. But I found working with you know, senior women who've done really well as I was coming through and being able to take their wise counsel. So the fact that we can give that back and the fact that we do have this platform, you know, we feel A, extremely privileged and B, it's really enjoyable sharing experience with others and seeing them come through. And it's exciting for the sports industry as well, particularly the talent that we're we're meeting and and, and the candidates for this particular programme. I mean, we're going to be in a great place, I think, looking forward. Andy, the, the last year has certainly seen great strides taking place from a sporting point of view um, when it comes to women's sport. But some of those battle scars that Vicky referred to and maybe some of those barriers you have to smash through on the way up, do you see that being replicated in young women making their way through the sports industry um, at the moment? Or, or do you think things have changed? Yeah, I think things are changing and there's certainly improvements and you know, there's some, there's more opportunity, I think, you know, looking back at where I started and versus where a lot of people are now. But I definitely think that there's still a lot ways to go and there's still barriers and there's still, you know, the gender gap, there's pay gaps, there's, you know, I, I think mostly uh, from my experience, like even in the boardroom and the higher you go, like Vicky was talking about the wider funnel, right? You need the wider funnel in order and you need diversity at all different levels um, because the further up you go, you find that, you know, there's more women. And I actually think I read the study the other day, you know, women, especially in senior roles are more likely to quit. And so I think, you know, you still see, you know, more males in the boardroom. Um, you still, a lot of my meetings um, are predominantly with men. And um, so I, I definitely still think that there is, you know, ways to go and you still see um, some of these challenges, but things have definitely improved in some areas. I don't know if I answered your fully question there. There was a lot of that one. <laughs> no, no, you did. And uh, Vicky, you talked about mentoring some of the women at Bath University, and obviously you'll be doing the same um, with the Sports Pro New Era cohorts. Are you seeing those stories replicated? I'm definitely seeing improvements. Um I, what I found, I would say, is a common thread are that, you know, we need to have more women who are of the mindset of help out, not catch out. So really helping, you know, women progress and and giving them opportunity and connecting them in. Women have a tendency through my, and again, please, you know, generalization maybe, but have a tendency to battle through things and to not raise their hand about it because they don't want to draw the attention or actually be seen to be different. So with time and with the right people, you know, as I say, doing the help out mentality rather than the catching out and taking people with them on the journey, I would hope to be able to see that women are able to to speak up and, and and explain what what the challenges that they're facing. You know, I have come across too many times women keeping pregnancy secret because they're worried about the disadvantage it may bring them. That, for example, is something that still needs to change because if they feel that promotion is there or they're on a particular trajectory in pregnancy, announcing a pregnancy may hold them back. Um, they don't say anything. And I think that's the type of behavior and it may be just themselves feeling that but it's the type of behavior i i still think needs to change this is sort of 
massive irony in the fact that you've got two men asking you these these questions um, and that actually might be symptomatic of a bigger problem but what can like what can men do to be like, better allies for women in the industry i think just um awareness and thought i think a lot of these things are kind of predisposition like this is how you should act in business these are things that you should do you know these are the questions to ask and i think there is still some of you know the um, older ways of thinking, um, like just exactly what Vicky said, you know, pregnancy, um, or like, I know when I got married, you know, there was questions about, you know, will I be having kids soon? Well, you know, all of these kinds of thought, I think is still very prevalent. So I think just awareness, awareness, and, you know, more conscious thinking about some of these things and inclusion. And um, I, I think all of it is necessary for development and evolving. Vicky, to pick up on that, do you think that's a cultural issue within the sports industry in general? Not necessarily from the male-female divide, but actually sports inability or lack of ability to create welcoming, inclusive cultures whereby people don't feel scared to deviate from that path or deviate from those traditionally male-dominated behaviours? I don't think it's just the sports industry. I mean, I have, I, I, I see it outside of the sports industry as well it's in any competitive environment certainly in in commercial organizations that i've seen operate as well um what i would say is that again as you see more and more females at the top and females who effectively normalize the situation of going off on maternity leave and coming back and still progressing and still having the opportunities um, I think that hopefully will help across the board, not just within sport, but because sport has been known for being largely male dominated, it, it's going to take time, I would I would think, to, to change that perception. Actually, again, it comes down to, as we see that diluted and you see more women making it to the top, the easier it will be to, to accept and actually relish the opportunity of having some of these incredibly talented women on the team. Vicky, just looking in preparation for this conversation, just looking back through some of your career highlights and a, a pretty notable list, um, see some quite heavily um, male-dominated environments. I know you spent a lot of time in the armed forces, some time in the West End, in sports. Have you found that those environments have come with a set of behavioral expectations and some strong limiting beliefs organizationally wide? I would say... What I've learned throughout all of them is genuinely, if you face into them, knowing what you can and can't control, and you're able to align yourself and adapt to the environment in which you're operating, you're going to find it much, much easier. So my experiences across the military, across sport, you know, in in fintech as well, um, all of them being very male dominated, have been very male dominated. I found the core to success in each of them has been through good communication, through leadership, through having an adaptable sort of problem solving mindset, an open mindset. And that way, it's far easier to face into, you know, problems or barriers that you may come across and overcome them. I reckon the military background and the training to start with probably helped me get through a lot of them and definitely the problem solving, definitely the agile um, way of viewing things, the adaptability and the communication skills and the teamwork and the leadership 
and they, they are all really helpful. But I've also been blessed, albeit that they have been fairly male dominated environments with some incredible working with some incredible people who haven't made it too difficult. It, it just depends on where you find yourself operating and if the people you're operating with are also, you know, open minded and supportive. We talked a little bit about um, the diversity of thought that comes with diverse organizations and diverse hiring practices. From your own perspectives, is that something that you're looking to get out of the program? Is understanding, you know, challenges of other women from different parts of the industry and also with different backgrounds? Have you found anything that's been eye-opening from the cohort thus far or from other members of the steering group? Yeah, I actually really appreciated um, the diversity of this group. And even when we were looking through the applications, um, I was, you know, impressed with a lot of experiences. And especially for those that, you know, I, for a lot of them, I thought I can learn from them. There were a lot of people, you know, who I, when I read their application, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I'd love to learn more about that. Um, yeah, so I, I felt like there was definitely a lot I can learn from both from the steering committee and from the cohort group. And it was really interesting, I think, too, because we have people from all different, you know, continents, from different countries. So there's also learning to be had there. Um, but in general, I, I think it's going to be it's going to be great. Yeah, I pass. I agree as well. I think it's a fantastic opportunity. I have to confess, actually, that when I go into a boardroom meeting, I tend to look for the other females around the board room table because you just have an affinity there's something okay I don't know if you men do it but it's definitely something that I do (laughs) you have an affinity and you just have that connection and so being put in an environment and and that's because I'm blessed with working with some amazing women on some of the boards that I I go on to but they tend to be in the minority but this particular course not only this program not only from the, the the individuals who've been selected to be you know, um, mentors, but also the, 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 those individuals, the mentees, is really exciting because you found, you know, a fantastic group of people who are co- clearly aligned to a common sense of purpose in terms of where they want to go. And with very, just from the backdrop from what you read, very similar values, um, but with diverse backgrounds and with diverse thought and diverse experience so I mean what, what a great sort of combination to bring together and that's why I think it's, it's exciting from our perspective but you know really exciting as well from the individuals we're going to meet along the way. Mm, I just from the sports point of view that having so many applications has made for I think for, for those involved a pretty excruciating process of trying to narrow that down to 12 and and um, whilst there are definitely some some works in the pipeline to to keep that whole group in, engaged and to to keep that conversation going, how did you both find a pretty tricky process, right, of whittling down a, a fantastic group of candidates into those selected? Yeah, I definitely found it difficult uh, when I started going through them. I was, you know, right off the bat, like, oh, this is this is going to be hard. And as you know, you're trying to, you know do your research and pick and look and think about it. Um, I actually had, I was thinking, wow, I hope everybody else um, in the steering group um, maybe had a little bit more uh, variety or variation when looking at this group, because for me, it was just so hard. I don't know, Vicky, I, I don't know what your experience was going through them, but 
Well, I felt like, you know, I, I have to confess that I do because Helen Skelton's on Strictly Come Dancing and I really like her. So I, I, um, I've been watching it recently and I felt like one of those judges where literally I'd be going straight away to it's a nine or a 10 and then I'd be thinking every single one of my marks and then I'd be edging it in between and because you had the little slider I'd be edging it between a nine and a ten and then thinking I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to come up with some different scores or put something different in the boxes to comment on them because actually you know the caliber we're all sitting in that nine ten grading okay. so trying to actually differentiate and, and mark anybody down was a big challenge because then I had to sort of really justify to myself why on earth I'd be marking them down when they were A-class caliber. So yeah, really tricky thing to do. Yeah. And I found myself going back too, like going back and having to like regrade everybody because I, you know, once then you can look at the whole field um, from the whole perspective, it, it changed things too. So anyways, it was, it was really interesting and a pleasure to, you know, read everybody's application. It's definitely throwing down the gauntlet from a, a sports pro point of view in terms of all, all of the different um, names and people out there and, and groups that have so much to contribute. And um, we definitely want to provide the platform for them to do so. Looking just at that judging process, there are obviously hundreds of people that applied this year and, and didn't make that final 12. And beyond that, thousands of women really across the globe internationally making their way not just in the sports industry but across a variety of industries as we finish today what would your one piece of advice be to those people making their way at the beginning of their journey yeah i would say you know just take in every single moment and experience and be really open to everything you can learn on the way from the people that you meet to every learning opportunity to network and you know get to know and connect with people a lot of times some of the best most rewarding things have been building a community or learning from people or also working with people that you know you have personal relationships with and so i think you know the more that we can foster the sense of you know community and building each other up i think you know you can take some of that into your day-to-day -day work and just make everything a little bit more fun it's hard enough as it is, you know, enjoy every moment, um, get to know people and definitely learn everything you can. Yeah. And I always say, you know, it, as hard as it can be, it's facing into everything with an unconquered spirit, because actually, if you really want it, it can happen, but you have to grab the opportunities as they come. And the experiences, both good and bad, will serve you well as you move forward. The other piece that I always say as well is, you know, I feel personally, you're only as good as the people on your right and left of you. And as a team, you're going to be far stronger. So create that trust and create those bonds with the people that you're surrounded by. And you'll definitely go further. Thank you very much for, for joining us, both Andy and Vicky. It's been a, a true pleasure to speak to you. An exciting year in women's sport, for sure. But also a reminder that there's a lot more work to be done, both on that, on the pitch and, and behind the scenes. So thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks very much.